wasn't that some good singing? I'm telling you what, that was awesome. Yeah, that was good. Somerset, Williamsburg, I, I think it was probably just as awesome there, but it was, we just didn't have singing. We had some singing. I mean, I'm telling you, bless God. I, I told you before, that's when the old timers would say, well, it's good to go home right now. We could say it's been good to be here. And uh, we could have, but we're not leaving. And so I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're in Williamsburg, glad you're there in Somerset. And uh, I want you to think about something uh, that I think is true about you. I know it's true about me. I think it's true about all of us, but everybody has something that gets on their nerves. Everybody has something that gets, not someone, we're not gonna make it that personal, but everybody's got something that gets on their nerves. I do, you do, you know, we all do. We all have something that, that gets under our skin to the point that it drives us to the, very, to the very brink of insanity. And it provokes such a visceral response uh, of such extreme measure, frustration, irritation, anger, that we just wanna, we just wanna punch a wall. We just wanna kick a cat. We, we, just wanna, we just wanna do something. I know you cat lovers are very upset and offended right now. I, I don't really mean that. I've never kicked a cat since I was 11. And, and so, but it makes you so mad. I mean, how many of y'all know what I'm talking about? When, when I'm talking about something can absolutely irritate the life out of you. And of course you get it because we all have something on our list. And, but here's what I've always believed about people at the Creek Church. Uh, we tend to uh, rank above average. So we just usually don't have one thing on our list of things that get under our skin, but we have a whole list of things, plural, that drives us absolutely bat feet crazy. I mean, it just absolutely drives us nuts. And so what I did this week, I, I sent a text to some of my friends and I said, tell me some of the things that are on your list. What really gets on your nerves and what gets under your skin? And so I, I wrote some down myself and sent some out to family and to friends. And, and so I, I put together some of those uh, that are on our list and I wanna see if any of them are on your list. And if they are, I mean, feel free to say amen. I mean, this is, this is a, a easy, safe place to be today. But it, here's one, drives, us crazy, people who drive in the left lane slower than the actual speed limit. Can, can I get a witness? I'm telling you, isn't that, and why are they always from Michigan or Ohio? I, I mean, I, I don't understand what they do up there. Um, people who refuse to turn right on red. It's like the government gave us a freebie. It's like we get to break the law, but not really. Kind of feel like a rebel without being a rebel. And it's like, just flip and turn right. And, and you, you, you just, you know, or equally, people who remain stopped at green lights. It's like, do, do, I, do I honk? How long is it polite to wait before? Are they dead? Uh, should I go check on them? Uh, how about this one? Someone said driving a big car without the ability to park it. When couples, this gets a little personal, sorry. When couples say, we're pregnant, no, we're not. <laughs> she is. You played a quick moment in the process, but it is all her after that, pal. She's carrying it, she's delivering it. No, you are with a pregnant person. You're standing by to support. We are not pregnant. Plural pregnant is not a thing, all right? So th that's, that's something. Someone who starts their questioning with, can I ask you a question? 
person says, first, it's may I ask you a question, but second, you literally ask a question by asking if you could ask me a question. Some of y'all have never thought about that before, but from here on out, that's going to bother you. You're, you're, you're welcome. Um, people who speak in pet, pet names, hey, sweetheart, hey, sugar pie, sweet pea, sweet nut, baby cakes. Is there anything else I can do for, you know, does that, does that drive anybody crazy? Not just me, okay, that's all right. Or here's one, of, I'll tell you this one's mine. It's been mine for years. People who order Big Mac, fries, supersize it, and then what do you want to drink? A Diet Coke. Well, you're just dumb. I mean, if you're gonna jump in, jump in. I, I mean, that extra 150 calories, you watching out for that? That's gonna be what kills you? You gotta be kidding me. Wrinkle-free filters. We've met you before. We know what you really look like. The porcelain thing on Facebook and Instagram, it's like, we know that's not the real you. Please stop. Anyway, that, that's, you know, um, I, I could go through these all days. Uh, you receive a text and then you get a call 30 seconds later. Did you get my text? Does that bother you? <laughs> or somebody who calls you, then you didn't answer the call. You, you, you red, red dotted it and, and then they call right back as if you're going to change your mind that fast. Oh, and then they'll call back again. It's like, by the third time, yes, you have persuaded me to answer your call. And so we all have things. We all have things that drive us absolutely crazy. We have a list of some things. Uh, and that's the fact. We all have some things that get on our nerves and under our skin. And that's true of all of us. But here's the part we don't often think about. So did Jesus. So did Jesus. Jesus had some things that got on his nerves. And Jesus had some things that got under his skin. Now, the image that a lot of people in modern day Christianity, West, Western Christianity, uh, the image that a lot of people carry around of Jesus is really quite regretful. It's regretful because it's incomplete. And, and it's really just as dangerous to have an incomplete version of Jesus as it is, you know, an outright incorrect version of Jesus that you carry around. But some people carry around this idea of Jesus that he kind of walked through life, he was never bothered. You know, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Let's all go tiptoe, hold hands through the tulips. Let's sing Kumbaya, it's all good, it's all good. He was never upset, he, never angry. Jesus, sweet Jesus would never be angry. Jesus would never be frustrated. Jesus would never be irritated. Uh, he's always even killed. He went from village to village singing his favorite song, whatever will be, will be, Sarah, Sarah. And everybody joined in and it was just, it was always happy, it was always positive, it was always good. But the problem is you read the gospels and you find that that was not always Jesus. Yes, Jesus was always loving. Uh, Jesus was always heavy on compassion. And the gospels are very consistent in the fact that they present a Jesus who extends patience and forgiveness and who extends mercy to the deepest point and to the furthest point. But at the same time, not only do we find that Jesus that all of us, we love to think about, but we also find another side of Jesus that we don't enjoy thinking about so much. And that's the version of Jesus where he encountered things. He encountered people doing some things that got under his skin, that irritated him, that made him angry, that made him frustrated. Uh, when you read through the gospels, you'll find that one of those things was unfruitfulness. Whenever Jesus found something that should bear fruit, but it doesn't bear fruit, it bothered Jesus. So that was one thing. And then the mistreatment of children, that always bothered Jesus. Whenever children was neglected or mistreated, he says, that's offensive to me. Hypocrisy, 
got under the skin of Jesus. Um, when people who believed in God made it hard for people to turn to God, that really bothered Jesus. Greed. When Jesus looked at people who had more than enough, but they were still unwilling to give, it bothered him. He found it offensive. And then when Jesus looked at people with hard hearts, who wouldn't let the truth in, who, who resisted the truth, who, who wouldn't let anything get to them, it bothered him. But the one thing that hurt Jesus, maybe more than anything else, the thing that he found so deeply offensive that he had zero tolerance for, it was something that when he saw it in people's lives, he saw it as something that was dangerous to their soul. Now think about that, that it could be dangerous to someone's soul, that it could undermine their relationships, their most important relationships, their most treasured relationships, their closest relationships. He saw it as something that would eventually cause you and cause me and cause anybody who was living this way or embracing this or living with this, he saw it as something that would ultimately cause every single one of us to break the greatest commandment of all, that it would cause us in some way to unlove God and it would cause us to unlove our neighbor. So when you see through the gospels, you, you constantly find Jesus actively working to undo this. And again, that's what we're asking in this series. What would Jesus undo? And today we're gonna talk about self-righteousness. It bothered Jesus. I would say it probably bothers most of us when we see it. The problem is most of us just don't see it in the mirror when it's there to be seen. But Jesus, when he saw self-righteousness, it irked him, it irritated him, it got on his nerves, it got under his skin, it bothered him. He had zero tolerance for self-righteousness. And this should, all, this should all cause us to just think about, to pause for a moment and to consider, wow, if Jesus had zero tolerance for this, if nothing bothered him like this, then maybe I should just, you know, take a long, hard thought about self-righteousness. And that's what we're gonna do. But before we do that, when you go through the gospels, you find most of the time that there was a large crowd following after Jesus. There, there was always seemingly a big crowd there unless Jesus was running from the crowd, but there was always the presence of a crowd. And if you took that crowd, which was very diverse and, and, and you just deduced them into two large groups and you, you kind of just with very broad strokes and you put these two groups onto each side of the aisle, you would find over here was the unreligious sinners, uh, the unrighteous, uh, but over here, you would find the saints of the day. Over here, you would find the uber-religious of the day. And over here, you would find the self-righteous of the day. So Jesus had these two different groups following around all the time. Sinners and saints, irreligious, religious, and the unrighteous and the self-righteous. Now, the rub for the people over here, the unrighteous, the saints, the religious of the day, which I just don't want to spoil the fun for us. If you've been in church any time at all, we, we navigate towards this side of the aisle. You know, maybe once upon a time we were unreligious, we were sinner, we were unrighteous, but the longer we're in and the more we know, we tend to take steps in this direction without even knowing it. And, and the problem with over on this side of the aisle was that Jesus was known as a friend to sinners. Jesus was known as a friend of the unrighteous, of the irreligious. And it seemed as though Jesus gravitated towards people whose lives were a mess, 
whose lives were undisciplined, whose lives were not religious. And it seemed as though that Jesus was always moving in the direction of the people that the religious self-righteous saints of the day wanted nothing to do with. And so Jesus was over here and, and we find something really cool and really great and it's good news for all of us. The people who were very much not like Jesus, very much like Jesus. And Jesus liked them back. So just pause because I think we need a moment of application. For us Christians, we are the body of Christ and what should be true of Jesus in the gospel should be true of us as his body, his ambassadors, his representatives. And if the people who were nothing like Jesus very much like being with Jesus and Jesus liked them back, how should the people who are not like us feel about us? Okay, that's enough, let's move on. I don't wanna lose you at the very beginning. So Jesus, what he do? He dined with them. He, he made them the heroes of the stories that he told. He extended compassion to them. Uh, he was always welcoming them, welcoming them, saying, yeah, come on in, you know, sit here, be with me. And he loved them. He loved them despite whatever condition he found them in. But however, over on the other side of the aisle, this particular group became known as the enemies of Jesus, the adversaries of Jesus. And Jesus' most antagonistic, insulting, in your face, combative, confrontive words were not for this group, not the sinners, not the unreligious, but for the religious for the saints and for the self-righteous. He didn't care to call this group out. He didn't care to call them out publicly. Matter of fact, he would often do it. And with a lot of, you know, in the most dramatic fashion, he did so in his very first sermon, Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Jesus has been, you know, preaching a little bit, he gets warmed up and then all of a sudden he throws this in here. Do not be like the hypocrites. And everybody in the crowd knew who he was talking about. He was talking about the religious crowd. He was talking about the self-righteous crowd. He was talking about the saints. He said, don't be like these hypocrites. And then he calls attention to their giving, to their praying, and to their fasting. Not that there's anything wrong with giving, praying, and fasting. Those are all great, noble, wonderful, right things to do. He says, but, he says, you give to be applauded. You pray to be heard by people. And you fast to be seen. He says, don't be like this people because they do good things and right things for wrong reasons. You say, well, it's better to do a good thing and a right thing for the wrong reason than not to do it at all. Jesus makes us wonder if that's true. He said, don't be like the hypocrites. He said, because they care more about posturing for people. They care more about the opinions of people. They care more about what their Facebook friends think about their posts and how conservative their conservative friends think they are and how, you know, just what people think about them and the applause and the approval. And he says, don't be like them because self-righteous people care more about how they do what they do than why they do what they do. And he said, that's why it's a problem. You think you're okay because of how you do what you do, but God's up there saying, hey, hold on, pal, hold on, sister. Why you do what you do is more important than how you do what you do. He says, you're doing all the good things for the wrong reason, and God gives you no credit for that. Amen. God's not applauding you for that. God's not impressed with you for that. Matter of fact, Jesus would say, you know what your reward is? Whatever attention you get from people. Whatever claps you get from people, whatever pats on the back that you get from people, that's your reward because there's none waiting for you with me. Whew. 
That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, why? Great question. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And it's like, because it's easier. (laughs) It's more fun to do it that way. It's easier for sinners and religious folk and self-righteous folk to get upset about somebody else's junk. Somebody else's dysfunction, somebody else's sin, someone else's misstep, somebody else's scandal, somebody else's whatever, than it is to actually consider any of our own junk, any of our own dysfunction, any of our own sin. Let's just be honest, it's a lot more enjoyable to overplay somebody else's sin and downplay our own. That's just, that's just a, that's a better way to live if you're just going for the kicks of it. It's a lot easier to see the wrong in you and you and them. It's easier to see the wrong looking out my window than it is to see the wrong looking in my mirror. It's easier. It's fun. Preachers love to do it. It's easier to blame the speck in somebody else's eye. To say that's the problem right there. That's why it's all going to hell in a handbasket right there. It's her, it's him, it's them. And it's easier to blame the speck in somebody else's eye than it is to consider maybe the log in my own eye is contributing to the status of things. It's just easier to do that. It's easier to draw attention to the sin of others, to scream at the sin of others so that nobody wants to talk about ours. It's a nice little game that we've come up with in the religious world, the church world, the self-righteous world. See, we take our sin because we would never say we're without sin uh, because we know better than that. But, but to take our itty bitty sins and to hide it behind the big boy sins and the big girl sins of somebody else. And if I hide my little bitty sins behind somebody else's big sin, then I don't have to feel bad about it. I don't have to face it. And thanks be to God, I don't have to change it. See, we've worked all this stuff out. We're good at it. It's easy for us. It's easy for me. I don't know you, but it's easy for me. But if I were a betting man, I'd bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that you're the same as me. It's a lot easier to find somebody else that we think is guilty of a worse thing and then just rail against it. See, that's social media. That's why it works so well. We just get on there and we rail against whatever and it makes us feel good about ourselves. We point at other people's problems so that nobody else hopefully points back at us. We cut other people down so that we stand taller. We create, this is what we do now. I know it's just not comfortable and I, I didn't come to church today thinking anybody was gonna stand on a pew, stand on a chair, clap or run around the building and shout. I, I didn't expect that. This is just, and Jesus' crowd didn't either. It's a lot easier for us to step outside of what the scripture teaches and create a hierarchy of sin. Attach values to those sins and in thus doing so create a hierarchy of sinners. That there's respectable sinners and then there's just those reprobates. It's those people who practice, it's those, you know, and we create a hierarchy of big sin, little sin, big sinners, little sinners. And of course, in our hierarchy of sin, it typically indicts everybody else or at least somebody else while it absolves 
us. This is why I bother Jesus because it's just in us to demand somebody else change so that things get better. Rather than me doing the hard work of working to change myself so that things might get better. And Jesus found it offensive. And Jesus found it repulsive. Because self-righteousness makes us bad at honesty and good at hypocrisy. It's hard for us to get honest when we're self-righteous. It's hard for us to be vulnerable. It's, it's hard for us to admit we're a mess. It's hard for us to admit we're dysfunctional. It's hard for us to admit the junk. That's why it bothered Jesus. It offended him. It got under his skin. It bothered him because self-righteousness, it causes us to prioritize being right over being kind. And some of us need to write this one down. Because if you think that God is most impressed with you being right, as you remain unkind, you haven't read your scriptures. It is more important for you to be kind than it is for you to be right. But here's the kicker, you can be both. You can know what's right, believe what's right, even speak what's right and still be kind at the same time. And Jesus was bothered by it because he knew that self-righteous people, they love to correct, but they hate being corrected. You know the sermons we love the most? Those that about halfway through we think, boy, I wish so-and-so was here. <sighs> Where are they? We're getting on the phone texting. Could you, could you log on right now to thecreekchurch.com? Feel like God may have a word for you. That's our favorite sermons. Boy, boy, he gave it to him today, didn't he? Who's them? Who's them? He gave it to them today. That's the ones we love. This bothered Jesus. Jesus showed up and said, you know what? You Pharisees, self-righteous hypocrites, you decorate the tombs of the prophets. You decorate the tombs of the prophets and you tell yourself that you wouldn't have stoned those prophets just like your fathers did before you. He said, but you know what? You're no different than your fathers. And had you been living then, you would have stoned those prophets just like your fathers did because the favorite type of prophet of a self-righteous person is a dead one. And the only prophet you like are the dead ones because they're not speaking into your life. They're not challenging you. They're not correcting you. So you'll celebrate them. You'll hang flowers and wreaths on their graves because they're dead and they've stopped talking. But you'll stone the living ones. Whew. Well, that was Jesus. See, if you want to get mad, get mad at Jesus. I just told you what he said. That's not my, that's not my stuff. That's not my material. That's just his stuff. We found one particular occasion where Jesus has been followed around by this self-righteous religious crowd and, and they've been doing what they do. They've been asking questions. They've been, you know, making their smug disapproval known by the way they look and by their body language. And, and Jesus kind of gets to a point where, you know, He's addressed it before, but it's, it's reaching. He just can't handle it anymore. And, and this is what Luke says. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And there it is, the fruit and the root of self-righteousness. Confidence in ourselves. A lack of self-awareness about how good we are that causes us to take some high ground and look down. 
on people. <laughs> That's what we do. Some of us, we... Whew. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. We feel it. Get a little angry. Start pointing some fingers. There they are. That's the problem. God, would you just send judgment? God, would you just eradicate? God, would you be like Sodom and Gomorrah and just God bring the fire? Because they deserve it. Jesus spoke to the people who had a tendency to step up on a soapbox and look down on others. Jesus came from the loftiest parts of heaven. He came from the right hand of the Father and he entered our world and he looked us in the face and he looked around as God in a body, God in the flesh, and it offended him that some people would actually climb up high and look down their nose when that was something that not even God was willing to do. Luke said that's who he's talking to in the story that he's about to tell. He's talking to the people who look down on some people. Not all people, that's not how it works. It's usually a handful, it's usually a group, it's usually a tribe. See, Jesus has talked about this in Luke 10 with the Good Samaritan story and he talked about how the religious crowd walked by and withheld mercy. He talked about it at the house of a Pharisee in Luke chapter 14 when he talked about the banquet and taking the best seat and all of that. And when you go out and invite, you invite your best friends, you invite important people, but you forget about the crippled and the lame and the blind. And, and so he's been making point after point. And then Luke 15, he tells the story about the prodigal son and the elder brother. And the one thing that Jesus keeps on coming back to is this idea that there is one thing very clear about the self-righteous. The self-righteous are always offended when grace gets extended. The self-righteous always gets offended. So I want you to think about it. If you get offended when somebody receives grace, when somebody that you thought should have to pay the piper didn't pay the piper, and it bothers you and it offends you, you should think about that for a moment because self-righteous people always get offended when somebody else has grace extended to them. And so Jesus is talking to the people in the crowd that day and he's talking to the people in the crowd today here in London, Williamsburg, Somerset. And he says, if there's ever been a time, if there's, a, if there's an area of your life, if there's a, a place where you tend to take high ground and look down on, because that's how self-righteousness works. It's when I use you to feel better about me. It's when I use them to feel better about me. That's how self-righteousness works. And let me tell you, it's a lot better to be here looking down than it is to be the person who's being looked down on. Let me ask this question. How many of y'all have ever felt like you were the person being looked down on? Yeah. Happened to me this week. My son, Grayson, got on his soapbox. We were... We were in the car, 
headed to school, she ever said, Dad, can we listen to the top 50 on Spotify? And I said, well, yeah, let's listen to top 50 on Spotify. Then I realized there was like an explicit top 50 and a non-explicit top 50, but that took a moment to figure out. And, and, and so then I thought I had the right one. And so we were listening to this song that we all kind of really liked, you know, uh, Astronaut in the Ocean and Mask Wolf. And, and, and boy, it's got a great beat. And all of a sudden there was a beep. And I was like, oh. So I just kept on letting it play. And Grace had said, Dad, this song, it's not very churchy of you. <laughs> you little flipping hypocrite. What are you, what are you talking about? Amen. You say, what did you do? How did you handle that as a pastor and as a father? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I locked their windows. I rolled them all down. I cranked it as high as I could and drove through the Christian school parking lot. No, I didn't. I, I drove through the Kroger parking lot. They're <laughs> dead. You're a pastor. Yes, I am. Come on. Come. Oh, they were mortified. Anybody can do it. Jesus is talking to anybody. For those of you who are Republican and you look down on those tax-loving, climate-loving, open-border-loving, mask-wearing, school-shutting-down fanatics called Democrats... And you look down your nose, Luke says, Jesus is about to talk to you. For those of you who are Democrats and look down on those xenophobic, homophobic, wall building, science denying, climate hating, religious hypocrites like Republicans, Luke says, Jesus is about to talk to you. For those of you who like to eat good, healthy, and watch your carbs, and you look down on people who could give a flip less about carbs, or those of you who could give a flip less about carbs, and then when you get out with your friends who hate carbs, and you think, what a boring life they live. Why don't you live a little? Whatever it is that causes you to step up and look down, whether it's those who wear masks and those who do, whether it's those who get a vaccine and those who don't, for whatever you as a husband look down on her about and whatever you as a wife look down on him about and parents who look at other parents and because they don't parent like you, he said, Jesus is about to talk to you. Because Jesus is offended by self-righteousness because self-righteous people see people who are different from them as less than them. This is how this works. This is why it bothers him. So Jesus says, two men, two men went up to the temple to pray and one was a Pharisee. Two men who had very little in common, but they did have something in common and we'll get that to the end. But here was a highly respected Pharisee. For us church people, you know, we kind of think of Pharisees as the bad people and you know, you know, they're the enemy. We don't want to be like them, but that's not how it was in the first century. They were, they were respected. They were highly regarded. They were seen as holy. They were seen as guardians of theology and morality. They, they were seen as being close to God. They dotted every religious I and crossed every you know, theological T. This Pharisee, he was a do it by the book kind of guy. If there was a box, he was gonna check it. If there was a rule, he was gonna keep it. He excelled in everything that spiritual people admire. He was passionate about his faith. 
He was committed. He was theologically astute. He knew the book front and back and in the middle. He obeyed all the laws and even made up some in case he messed up. That's how good he was. He was disciplined. They were separatists. They didn't want to really be around sin and sinners because they were afraid it was going to get on them. And Jesus said, okay, two men, one was a Pharisee. They went up to the temple. And Jesus says the other was a tax collector. So you got the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And this is part of the drama and the tension of Jesus' story. And this guy was thought of with disdain, despised, social garbage. They were cheats. They were liars. They were reprobates. They were an abomination. That's how they were thought of in first century Judaism. They were an abomination. They were seen as unloved and irredeemable. People in the first century said, these people, God has no place for these people in his family or his kingdom. And these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they went up to the temple. The epicenter of division and polarization itself. It's very architecture communicated that different people have different value. It communicated through its architecture and its layout and its practice who was in and who was out. And there were courts and there were walls and there were walls that separated the Jews from the Gentiles and the men from the women and the priests from the non-priests and the holy from the unholy, the clean from the unclean. And the whole architecture of the temple was a reminder of who was in, who was out and who was closest. And so that's where they went. And out of the temple, that whole mindset, it flooded all of Jewish culture, all of Jewish interactions, the Jewish economy. It started there at the temple and that's where they went. It says the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. He stepped up. He stepped up and he's looking down. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's like, oh, heavenly father, I am so glad that you have me on your team. God, how blessed you are by me. How, how good is it for you that I'm on the squad? And so here's this guy, I mean, it's like Jesus takes this to the, just the craziest extent to make the point of what's really true, of how we act and how we think and how we respond. And this guy says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like such and such, such and such, such and such, because he had clear categories, because that's what legalism and religion does. It allows us to create categories of people. We, we assign value and hierarchy to sin and sinners. And so in his mind, in his system, it made perfect sense. There was an elaborate system. And in this elaborate system, he checked the most important boxes. Those people didn't. He had the most important interpretations. Those people didn't. He had the most important opinion to have, the most important behavior to abstain from or to engage in. Those other people didn't. And so he had categories. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like. And here's something to learn about us. Self-righteous people look down on the sinners who sin differently than they do. I'm gonna let that one hang for a moment. 
Jesus' problem is not with the Pharisees, it's with the way of life the Pharisees had embraced. Their dispositions, their attitudes, their practices, their perceptions that were in opposition to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to introduce to the world. This guy had a list of people that he was thankful he was not like. I suspect some of us have that list too. Well, God, at least I'm not. And God, at least I haven't. And God, I would never. Well, that's one thing you can count on me. I would never do. I would never say. I think we all have a little bit of a list of things and people we're thankful for that we don't do and people we're not like. And I've been around the church and the Christians a long time. I am one. I know how we are. Most of the time, it's also doubles as our prayer list. Lord, I tell you who I'm praying for this morning. I'm praying for so-and-so, but God, thank you that that's not true in my life. Thank you that that's not a part of my story. If you have a list like the Pharisee of the people that you're thankful that you're not like, I think Jesus' advice to you would be burn that list. He goes on and the guy says, I fast twice a week and give a 10th of all I get. I mean, he was above and beyond. I mean, he fasted 103 times more in the course of the year than he was required by the law. He was a double tither. He just didn't give a 10th of what he had received. He gave a 10th of what he bought just in case he missed something. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being overly committed. But he's trusting in all of this goodness to get him extra points with God. He's trusting in all of this good stuff and all this right stuff to get him a little extra favor with God. A little extra bargaining chip with God, a little better standing with God, a little extra favor, a little extra anointing, a little extra than somebody else. And so he began to trust the things that he did and he had confidence in what he was doing, which is the heart of self-righteousness. And he allowed what he was doing to create distance between him and the people who weren't doing what he was doing. And not only did it create distance in between what he was doing and the people who weren't doing what he was doing, he allowed it to be filled with disdain for the people who weren't doing what he was doing the way he was doing it. He said, Jesus goes on and says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The one who was not even allowed in the temple, who lived in the margins of life, Unlike the Pharisee, he saw himself. He saw himself as he really was. And he couldn't even look up. He was so bothered and broken and troubled and he saw himself. He looked in the deep corners and the deep recesses and he saw himself. And he cried out for mercy, which comes from the Hebrew word, which means atonement. He was asking for his sins to be covered, his sins to be forgiven, his sins to be taken away, for his guilt to be taken away. He was asking for what he couldn't earn. And he was asking for what he didn't deserve. And he was asking for what he couldn't buy. And he was asking what he couldn't bargain for. You know what he was asking for? He was asking for grace. He was throwing himself on grace. He's begging for grace. 
He realizes his only hope under heaven is grace. He has no goodness to boast of. He has nothing to bring to the table and to put on the resume, only grace. And he's asking for what he knew he didn't deserve. You see, grace is what we crave when we realize we're guilty. It's my guilt that makes me thirsty for grace. But what made these two so different? Pride. Pride is what makes us think that we deserve grace. Now, we would never say it. We just live like it. And the moment you think you deserve grace, the moment you think you've earned grace, the moment you think you've earned standing, earned approval, earned a blessing, earned hearing, a prayer in the ears of God, it has ceased being grace. Pride is what keeps me from admitting that I need it, that I need grace, that I don't have it all together, that I'm messed up. It's pride that says, don't dare admit that you are solely and totally and completely dependent upon the grace of God, that I can't do anything apart from the grace of God. It's pride that keeps us from going there. It's also pride that keeps us from giving grace to other people when they need it, when they need it. Not when they deserve it, but when they need it. Amen. Because we climb up on a box and we think, you shouldn't have, I wouldn't have. I'm withholding grace. It's pride. It's pride. This is what the psalmist said, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all of his thoughts, there is no room for God. I don't need God, I'm okay. I'm doing this thing, got it all together. Or me and God, we're doing this thing together. Pride is the last barrier we have to overcome before we receive grace. Because pride says, I'm okay, I'm better than him, better than her. I'm better than a lot of Christians. Performance becomes our savior. Behavior becomes our atonement. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. It was a shocking again because there was no hint of any change of behavior. There was no indication, but Jesus said he went home justified. And everybody's thinking, you're telling me that the moral man, the man who went over and above, the man who knew more, read more, prayed more, gave more, fasted more, he went home unjustified and the man who sinned, the unrighteous, the unreligious went home justified and Jesus would say yes and the people in the audience are thinking what some of you, well, that's not fair and Jesus said, no, it's not fair. It's better than fair. It's grace. Yes, he was justified apart from anything he could do. He was justified apart from the temple or the sacrifices or the action of a priest or the mediator of a priest or a communion or a baptism. He was justified apart from anything he could bring to the table. He was justified completely, solely, absolutely by the grace of God. And all he had to do to receive it was to be honest with God. And Jesus doesn't put the moral Pharisee who started here down on the level 
with the unrighteous tax collector? In the end, Jesus says that an unrighteous tax collector is more upright than a self-righteous Pharisee. And it's offensive and it's troubling and it's unsettling, but that is grace. And that offends our sensibilities. We should pay attention to it because that just might be self-righteousness. Jesus said, because for all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. In what kind of world is a tax collector more upright than a Pharisee? Jesus would say, in the kingdom of God. Where the first seemingly ends up last and somehow against all odds, the last end up first. You see, God isn't impressed with our morality. He's not. He's moved by our humility. That's what we learn. We learn that those who have freely received grace should also freely give grace. How can I put a cost or a price on something that I received freely? And we learned that grace has always been and will always be scandalous. It isn't fair. But in the end, you know what? We don't want fair. Because if we got what was fair, we'd all get hell. But it's grace. Anything short of hell, you know what you call it? Grace. And grace is free because the provider has paid the cost. And as different as they were, they did share the most important thing in common. They both were sinners and they both were loved. And the same is true of us. We are all sinners. Messed up, jacked up, screwed up sinners. Put me at the front of the line. We are all sinners. We none made the cut. None of us made the team. We are all sinners. No big sin, little sins, no big sinners, little sinners. We are all sinners. We all fell short of the glory of God, but we're all sinners loved by God. And Jesus made the ground at the cross level. No boxes to stand on, no place to look down on. Because in the end, for those who receive it, we're still nothing but a sinner saved by grace. And Jesus' half-brother closes it when he said, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve mourn well change your laughter to mourning and joy to gloom humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up and as David said the Lord he is close close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit you may never know what hangs in the balance 
of your decision to admit your need of grace. Let's bow our heads. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your savior. You've never placed your faith. You've never cried out for mercy or forgiveness or for grace. You can do that today. You can do that right now. Here in London, Williamsburg, Somerset, you can bow your head right now and you can just pray a simple prayer, something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I receive your gift of grace. Forgive me, cleanse me. Give me a home in heaven after this life and help me to follow you all the rest of this life. In Jesus' name. Our heads are still bowed, our eyes are closed. And if you prayed that prayer, I hope you'll tell somebody today. I hope you'll let somebody know today. But for those of us who are Jesus followers, and there may be a box in your life that you like to run to and stand on and look down on people that you like to use somebody, someone, them, that, a behavior, a practice, a habit, and you've conned yourself, you've convinced yourself that you were standing for right, you were just towing the line, but, but really, your disposition, your heart, your anger, your words, it betrays something far worse. It reeks of self righteousness. I can't tell you if that's you, but only the Holy Spirit can. And I want you to just take a moment and say, Holy Spirit, if that's me, would you speak to me? Would you speak to us? Break self righteousness in our hearts, undo self righteousness in our hearts. The only one who could have stood on anything to look down. Rather, he chose to come down and he looked sinners in the face and he died for them all. So God, break self-righteousness and give us a spirit in this moment. Give us an attitude, a disposition in this moment that has the humility and the honesty to say, we need you. God, we need you. We need you in the morning. We need you at noontime. We need you in the evening. We need you to breathe in and we need you to breathe out. We need you when we're doing it good and we need you when we're not doing it so good. We need you in the midst of our dysfunctions, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of the battle, in the midst of it all, we need you. There's never not a moment that we don't need you. So God, let us be utterly convinced that we need you. So much so that we dare not look down but rather, God, we would be so utterly convinced that we would look up to our helper, our stronghold, our savior, our redeemer, our advocate with the Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna sing it. We're gonna declare it. Lord, we need you. And if you wanna come pray, feel free to come pray. If you wanna pray where you are, but use this song and speak it to God. Lord, I need you. He is close. He's but a step away. And if you'll come near him, he will come near to you.